Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, wait for it, a non-COVID conversation from MI3. That's got to be worth a beer. Uh, This week, we are talking to digital and media techies about why Google's announcement to ban third-party cookies in 2022 will upend everything that the digital marketing sector has been built on for for at least two decades. Hyper-targeting, personalisation, one-to-one marketing, user tracking across the open web, and yes, even first-party data. This conversation will require some of us, me included, to focus beyond the good old seven-second goldfish attention span rule, because if this posse of guests is right, there is some big stuff going down. So welcome today to Anna Simkova, Group General Manager of Digital for the PASS Group, which has 250 retail stores across Black Pepper, Review and Jet Swimwear and has the Asia-Pacific rights to brands like Lonsdale, Everlast, Russell Athletic, Dunlop and Slazenger. Also with us today is Nick Barnett, Westpac's former Director of Digital and Media Technology and is now an independent advisor. Joey Nguyen, co-founder of MarTech and CX advisory firm Ventifact, and Chris Brinkworth, a former Emich executive who's been in the US and is back with a company called Synergy Stack. Welcome to you all. Nick Barnett, let's start with you first. Nick, Safari with 30% effective browser share is probably the best indicator we've got at the moment of this train crash that could be coming for marketers in 2022, which, by the way, is only about 15 months away. That's when Google's Chrome browser will block third-party cookies, like Safari has already done under Apple. And there are even material challenges for first-party data. It's the end of one-to-one targeting and everything that digital marketing has hitched its britches to for two decades. And Nick, I just wonder, before we get into the nitty-gritty on this, do marketers understand what's coming, how big it is, and what they should be preparing for? Give us your take first up on your bigger picture thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Paul. That's a great question. The honest answer is I really think there's a very low level of understanding and there's a probably a low level of urgency around this. I mean, you know, specifically in Australia, there's been a lot going on through, you know, right through from the bushfires to the, the recent COVID-19. So when you start talking about technology and ad tech, obviously there's there's right now going to probably be a, a lower level of urgency when it comes to these kinds of things. But from the, the conversations that I'm having with major brands who are spending significant significant amounts of uh, money every year on uh, digital marketing and and just sort of broad uh, content, video um, uh, activities in both performance and brand, um, it appears that no one understands that by 2022, it could render as much as 85% of these budgets and these investments useless. So to to answer the question about how big it is, I would say that really comes down to um, how much a brand is investing in in these kinds of activities. But if you were to ask me, do you feel comfortable with 85% of your marketing and digital budgets being left to chance and spray and pray tactics? I would say absolutely not. So the fact that we're not hearing more about this is really quite alarming 
for me. And I'd, I'd love to see a higher level of awareness and a higher level of urgency, um, you know, in the coming months. Well, we're going to get to the nitty gritty on this and it's some great points there, Nick. Chris Brinkworth, for all of us that aren't as tech savvy as most of uh, you on the panel today, explain to us this ominous Google 2022 deadline. W what does it all mean and what's going on? So I think the best way to look at it would be that we should all have really been paying attention when Safari rolled out their ITP and ITP2 protocol. ITP stands for what, Chris, for those of us that don't know? So correct me, I'm wrong, Joe, but I think it's Intelligent Tracking Prevention. That's it. So because it was really, like you were saying earlier on, an effective market representation of 30% of cookies not being set within um, browsers, and those are Safari browsers, uh, people didn't really think it was a major problem. And quite often, a lot of agencies may not have actually told their brands that they're not targeting those specific users. And, and as an example of that would be iPhone. Now, iPhone, as we all know, anyone that can afford an iPhone, uh, they've probably got quite a high discretionary spend, uh, but it's a lot easier from the perspective of frequency capping, targeting, et cetera, not to have to worry about those particular devices uh, if if we can get away with it. I say we, I don't plan media anymore, but if an agency can get away with it. So, so it's kind of been overlooked, but now Google have come out. And if you think of Google, uh, they, they do many things, but one part of their business is the Chrome browser. And what a lot of people probably don't know is it's, it, it's off a project called Chromium, the Chromium project, which is also the basis for Microsoft's browser, the Edge browser also, it is also based a little bit on the Chromium project. Now, Chromium themselves uh, have come out and basically said within a two-year period, so 2022, and this was out uh, in, in January, February, they announced this, 2022, Chrome will no longer allow any technology that is third party to the actual website being visited. It will not allow them to drop or track cookies on a user. So let, let me just take a step back on what that actually means. So at, at a very basic level, if you've got a website called mywebsite.com.au or mywebsite.com, anything coming in from Facebook, anything coming in from, let's take, uh, I don't know, uh, myretargetingcompany.com, myanalyticscompany.com, if that's coming into that first-party domain, it's seen as third-party. So it's seen as a user has not given permission for that cookie to be dropped. So Chrome will, in effect, be blocking any kind of cookies from any technology that is not owned by that first-party domain. And just to be clear, Chris, a cookie, for those that may not even have got that far, is a piece of code that's dropped onto a browser that allows someone to follow that user across the open web. That's exactly it. And I think the, the way I would explain them is literally think of a fortune cookie, not a chocolate and chip cookie. When you open up that fortune cookie, you've got some paper, and on that paper are bits of information and it's everything about you as a human being that, or a device that can be recognised on that piece of paper. Okay, so why then uh, is this 2022 from Google and what it's going to do, like Safari already has, why is it so problematic? Why uh, should it concern the entire marketing and media supply chain? And technology supply chain as well. So, so Nick rightly said just now about how it's really going to impact the budgets from a media spend perspective, but also any technology that you have already invested in for your marketing technology stack, which Joey can cover, also can be severely impacted by this. So if you have a technology 
For example, if you're an advertiser, a DMP may actually not be what you need anymore because DMPs are heavily reliant on third-party cookies. That's where the CDP comes in, which I believe Anna could probably talk about. But for publishers, it's now important, more, more important for them to understand their DMP project. So this impacts so many elements of the entire supply chain, not just that targeting aspect. Your analytics will be impacted. Your chatbot surveys that appear, they will be impacted. Any way to optimize your website to determine whether or not this is the best layout to get the conversion I want, that will be impacted as well. So this is a multi-billion dollar issue globally. The, the, the key thing is no one has yet found a solution, yet everyone is trying to find that solution. Well, we, we plan to look at what some of the solutions might look like, but Nick, uh, you have some fairly strong views uh, on all of the, well, many of the practices that have been happening in digital marketing. And in this instance, it looks like some of those fundamentals, uh, as we mentioned earlier, about targeting, retargeting, performance media, one-to-one, all gets blown up. Now, you're no fan, I don't think, of, of, of hyper-targeting and certainly cookie bombing uh, either. But, but, but what happens here? What's your take on what happens for a, uh, what are marketers and, and, and brands and blue chips need to be thinking about here? Well, I, I think that's a fantastic question. You're absolutely right. I am not a fan of tactics like cookie bombing, which for anyone who's not familiar with that, uh, it involves a marketer or a group of marketers who are coming to the end of their financial year. And they may be short on a few results here and there. And uh, effectively, they then run a burst of activity in something like display media or something that's using impression uh, based media buying. So, I mean, you know, that could be uh, dynamic media, but let, let's just keep it at um, advertising banners for now. And then what happens is when you serve enough banners to people, you cover enough of the population or at least the target markets that uh, the advertiser is looking for. Eventually, what happens is those ads end up correlating with the sales that that company would have made anyway. In other words, um, you end up just basically tagging and tracking uh, all of the customers that would have actually just gone and um, you know bought a product or converted on someone's website anyway without even seeing that ad. And so um, you know those kinds of tactics uh, have been used in the past because there's no better way of measuring other than last touch or last click attribution. So, um, you know, for me, that kind of cookie bombing approach where um, you're using a correlation argument to um, suggest that you've actually caused a, an increase in sales just won't wash anymore. So for me, where, where this is taking us is actually it's going to hold us to a higher standard as marketers. You can't use these kind of tactics anymore. Also, you know, a lot of my experiences in banking and finance where you have absolutely colossal, um, huge budgets uh, comparatively to a, a lot of other um, verticals in Australia, and so uh, it, it means that they're going to have to be a hell of a lot more resourceful. You know, um, I, I think that there's a, an argument here to say it's not about needing more resources. You need to be more resourceful with, with what you have. And especially post-COVID-19, um, I think there's going to be a real push to be more resourceful with what we have. So things like hyper-targeting and that argument that, uh, you know, I served someone an ad um, at, the, at the point in time when they were so ready to buy and my ad is what made them buy um, just goes out the window and it, and what you actually move to is um, 
having more balance, a more balanced view of your marketing activities. It becomes about the quality of the brand interactions. You know, marketers aren't looking anymore just to flog products, particularly in banking and finance. There's been a real push post Royal Commission towards how do you actually genuinely service customer needs? And, and you'll see a lot of the major banks are actually moving uh, a lot of their communications, even restructuring their websites to talk about life moments. Uh, and and the, the, the challenges that customers are having. So you go from uh, a few years ago, which was, hey, how, how do we flog more credit cards, to now talking about how do we be there and have a conversation over time for a first home buyer to educate them as they go and be their trusted source of information. And and for me, that's, that's a movement towards more contextual, um, even sort of content-based marketing, but also coming back to what marketers are supposed to do, which is... Um, don't get caught up in these kind of silver bullet magic technologies, which I would argue there's not concrete evidence actually delivers what it say it, says it delivers. Um, it says get back to building a brand, building trust and reputation uh, and moving customers through a well thought out intelligent process. And you can still leverage a lot of the, the technology, the data and the smarts. You can still use your first party data. It's just the way that you're executing marketing campaigns and what you're focusing on is going to be drastically different. So people that have hung their hat on being able to do uh, hyper-targeting, they're going to have to change um, what they're doing on a daily basis. They're going to, uh, a lot of the companies that are, are geared up towards that are going to have to change their business models. Chris Brinkworth, does it fundamentally challenge and change what the, the, the underpinnings of, of the digital media and marketing thinking has been for the last couple of decades? Is, is it that significant? I was actually I was just thinking when Nick was talking there about like some kind of analogy here. There's there's a combination of Back to the Future and Back to the Future Two going on here. So there's two directions that will start to head. So the the key thing is the the one to one or the the holy grail of one to one marketing um, will technically disappear um, outside of those areas where it's first party. So let's take Facebook as an example. On the Facebook website, yes, that would still be possible because it's a Facebook domain and it's Facebook's data. So they would be able to do that on Facebook. But outside of that, uh, you won't be able to take, for example, data uh, from Anna's customer data platform and you won't be able to wash that with publishers to go and advertise to those people. That is gone, completely gone. So that one-to-one -one marketing is, is not going to be there. Uh, that's, that's currently what's happening. Now, if you look to the future, then, and Joey, Joey could probably talk more to this than me and, and, and Nick, but the data science aspect, there's a really terrific opportunity there to work from a data science perspective. But if we go back in time, which is what we can do at the moment, I think we'll start to see what we saw in the very early days of 2000, 2001, people who would remember, for example, 9msn.com.au. Uh, before we had the ability to target people like this, we would have to buy a run of a particular section such as sports, or we'd have to buy into a directory where we knew that directory was about weddings, for example. So it was, it was contextually based uh, within that, that, that targeting. So, so that's, that's the, the, the kind of throwback in the going back into the past. Now, part of that is also, I think we're gonna see a really big resurgence of um, panel-based activity as well. So, so where we used to use Nielsen and Roy Morgan, et cetera, um, and I, and I think it's probably something you could talk about there, Paul, but I, I feel that panels would become really important, but a combination of those. 
So if you were to look at Nielsen, so just, just as an example where Nielsen themselves have their home scan panel, which shows where visitors um, who pre pre predominantly buy at Audi uh, are most likely to buy using promotion, the heavy coffee drinkers, etc. Currently, you have the ability to take that data, which is third-party data, and you can overlay that with an advertiser's first-party data or a publisher's first-party data. So you're enriching the data that these two entities own using that panel data, but you still need to have that panel data in the first place. So there's a, a, a strong position there for, for panel-based data to, to help all aspects of what's going on. Well, I think that's grandly ironic, and it's, a, it's a, a, a podcast in itself, I think, the fact that, you know, we're returning a little bit to panel when a lot of the digital sector have been smashing panel data as being irrelevant and anachronistic for, for a decade. So I think there's something really fascinating in that, Chris. Joey, uh, to you, um, does this all, are you buying all this from your, your fellow panellists here about the fundamental uh, changes that are coming? And I think there is also uh, probably really interesting in this is there's some big implications here even for first party data work through that for us absolutely i think that one of the challenges that the industry is facing and that i see all the time when speaking to clients is there's not a clear understanding there's a technical barrier to understanding how this impacts uh, an individual company and the entire technology stack that they're using. And the problem that we face is because third-party cookies were unchecked for so long that there's this entire cookie economy that's been built up, underpinning things that people may not think it does. So as an example, uh, a lot of investment's been put into activation of first-party data, this big type of investment into data management platforms, DMPs, people wiring up their CRM systems, allowing retargeting of their own users from an advertising perspective. And of course, that's something that's directly impacted here. But on top of that, things like segmentation and personalization on their own brand websites, and specifically here talking about when there's a portfolio of brands that might go across multiple domains all of that will be impacted uh, directly by these uh, the Safari and Chrome 22 changes and essentially be dead in the water. Additionally to that, there's changes to the way that people are measuring their users and trying to provide them better experiences. So the idea of first-party cookies is something within a brand's control, right, rather than nefarious other technologies trying to do cross-site tracking, but within a brand's control to help measure, analyze, and optimize their user experiences. But because some of the workarounds that have been in place, uh, Apple and Chrome have essentially, Apple and Google have essentially clamped down on some of these things, put a seven-day window in place for the lifespan of, uh, of first-party cookies that are sent set by some of these technologies. So it means people who are measuring in the past with the Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics suddenly have had that window impacted. It's also on the horizon that Apple has announced this authentication API. And what appears to be the direction that they're going is to essentially limit all tracking of users between visits. So unless a user has explicitly authenticated, let's say with a, with a Westpac, uh, logged in and told Westpac who they are, that Westpac won't be able to track that user between visits. And what we're seeing as a result of this, it, it's still, I would say, quite immature, is a shift to moving some of these technologies that have client-side cookies for good reason 
to server-side cookies. Now, you are going to have to explain that to us, Joey, server-side cookies. Absolutely. So, essentially, if we're talking about some of these technologies like a, a Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics being something that most brands would be familiar with, uh, the way that this first-party cookie is set generally is within the browser. So the script that you include to initiate Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics runs and creates the cookie itself. That is what Safari has a problem with. It doesn't want these external technologies to use a brand's cookie space to track the users. However, if the brand goes through the effort of uh, in, in a way, you could say validating, putting a stamp of approval on these cookies by setting them server-side, then Safari will allow them to stay because they would consider that a, an appropriate use of cookies. Uh, Adobe has gone through a couple of steps to allow brands to do that, and that means that they would have a domain, like a, as an example, measurement.brand.com.au, and that would allow the Adobe service to set the cookies. Uh, Google, there are a couple of things that people have proposed that can, can be implemented as DIY solutions for these brands to, in, to increase the efficacy of these cookies. Well, what is, I think, a challenge at the moment is that a lot of these things are being done point-to-point, -point, technology to technology, and what's missing is a holistic view of all technologies that could potentially be be uh, affected by this that are impacting things like any brands with a journey that goes beyond seven days, right? And there are a lot of brands like that. And in the future, if Safari does put these authentication API changes in place, any brand that has a multi-visit, multi-touch journey, which is essentially every brand in the entire world. Well, Anna Samkova, what the hell do you make of all this? You're sitting in, in, in the hot seat as a digital marketer and working yourself through COVID at the moment as well. When you hear what these chaps are talking about, what do you make of it? Paul, um, thank you for the question. I'll second what uh, Nick and Joy, I'm not as technical as Joy though, because I, I just deal with whatever's thrown at me, especially now every single day, but I, I do uh, overlook the digital um, uh, marketing and advertising right now. And luckily for us, um, we moved away from spray and pray about three years ago and introduced and launched the customer data platform uh, into the group. Um, when uh, not many people actually knew what it meant and how to pronounce it. So you can imagine selling uh, that dream to the board. Uh, it took me um, a few goes, but uh, we finally launched it because we did want to um, create that personalised and one-on-one -on -one conversation. I should just interrupt to maybe just give our listeners a very quick overview of what a customer data platform does. It's essentially a central repository for all your data to sit across whatever platforms, whatever channels you've got. Have I got that marginally right? Yes, absolutely. And also um, it um, allows uh, anyone in the group um, a full understanding of, um, of the uh, single customer view that across uh, designers to um, uh, C-suite management to property uh, management to merchant planners so across the entire organization because what happened before uh, we have a BI team and business intelligence team 
um, that normally you'll come up with the questions and I will send you a comprehensive um, Excel spreadsheet um, with a bunch of numbers that jump in at you and makes no sense. And by the time it comes back to you, you already forget what the question that you wanted to ask and uh, what, what's the answer that you wanted to receive. And then no one could formulate the questions anyway. So it just didn't work for us. I wanted to take control of that and say, okay, if we want to know what the customer value, um, uh, customer lifetime value is and who shops with us once, who shops twice, so three times and anything in between, who these people are, where they come from, how they interact with the brands, what is the demographic, uh, what channels they engage with us on, how can I do that in the most simplistic way, and how can I empower our marketing and content people to have access to this information, because ultimately they're the ones who create that content, and they're creating these lifetime moments so that this all gets exhausted into the data and then there is no end-to-end -end overview. So what do we do with that content? So no one think of that because traditional marketers are saying, okay, well, let's just do the keylog shoots. Let's just produce uh, the a certain amount of imagery and um, let's just hope that it will we'll put it in the universe and something will stick, right? So, But you have to be making informed decisions and you have to use data for it. You need to under understand who shops with you, uh, how they interact with the brand, who's engaged, who your audience is, and how, what type of content you need to serve to them. So this is what customer data platform allows us to do. And in a way, keep, it helps us to control our customer journeys as well, that we, um, we overlook in real time and we keep finessing it as well. So this is the, this is the first party data that, to the, that Joey says uh, is also potentially challenged in some way but before we get to that what's your the spray and pray that you talked about that you've abandoned uh, a few years back all the things that we're talking about so far do you think it has an impact on your business in 12 months 18 months time absolutely and i agree with nick that uh, not many uh, people talk about it um, as yet and obviously there are valid destructions that are going on and um, we have to think about that, never mind what happens in 2023. It would be nice to know what happens tomorrow or on the 11th of May, and if we can open the stores. But I agree with Nick that it will help us to control our spend and own that spend to a degree, and uh, maybe not to waste uh, money and uh, back it up with massive budgets, but to understand the matrix and, um, um, and uh, be more, um, diligent for that uh, with our spend and um, and how we do it. Joey, can I ask, hearing Anna talk, are there flashpoints around even what she's talking about here with CDPs and first-party data? Are there points where there could be some, um, some challenges? Yeah, look, I definitely think the customer data platform is a very hot topic and a big part of the the new world that we're going into. You know, it started off as a as a category primarily with challenges, new uh, emerging technologies on the scene coming out of the US, but we've seen the moves from Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle to come into the space. And really what we're seeing is these multi-cloud uh, solutions that have previously had data management platforms are starting to adapt them into this customer data platform technology. What I would say is that we shouldn't look to a customer data platform as an, a one-stop answer for this, for the changes to the cookie economy that are coming, but rather a part in a, a tailored set of solutions that need to be a mix of strategy and technology to address a new world. So it's not just going to be buy a CDP and it fixes everything, but rather how can you use it uh, 
how can you use it well? How can you set it up in a way that's best for success, leveraging some of the other things I mentioned, like server-side cookies? And how can you connect it to your technologies in a way that as much as possible bypasses the cookie supply chain and instead is leveraging things like server-to-server connections of technology? I think that's the way we can best make use of a CDP, knowing it's not going to be a one-to-one match for what we had before, but rather part of the new way of doing things. Nick, Chris referenced earlier this shift away from behavioural targeting to contextual. That's a new game for a lot of uh, digital marketers and and I I guess your take on how radical a change is required to the skill sets, capabilities and so forth of of existing uh, marketing teams and digital marketers as a result of these changes uh, coming. How big is that gap? I think it's it's a big gap and I think everyone needs to be to start working on it now. Um, because, you know, I think where we're at, we develop comfort zones as human beings. And I'd say there are a lot of comfort zones, particularly with the kind of cookie bombing, um, you know, conversion funnels and that kind of thing um, that that are still highly prevalent in digital marketing practices. Um, So, you know, the first thing that I think has really got to evolve is the way that we measure things. You know, I, I think every marketer, no matter what, whether you, you want to be hands-on in the tech or whether you want to, say, be more about creative brand concepts, everyone needs to understand basic statistics more, which is to say, if I do something, how do I know that it's adding incremental value to a customer, uh, whether that is a, a better, a, you know, a higher level of awareness of what our business does, or whether it's a, um, a greater level of trust and reputation, or whether it's that they're increasing the consideration to buy a product, or in, improving the kind of conversion experience when someone is looking for your products. Um, the basic statistics that sits behind every marketing discipline, whether it's brand, whether it's digital, um, will always apply. That will never change. And for me, I think even just picking up the basic statistics and revisiting them is only ever going to be a good thing because it's going to it's going to make you realize that you've been making a lot of incorrect judgments and personally i have recently and so i call myself out there as the top of the list um but i think it will lead to better decision making because there is not uh, this this kind of false positive measurement model that we've used all this time in post-impression tracking and um uh you know last touch attribution i think the the, the next thing that's got to change is the ways of working. So we're very used to this, this style of kind of build up a campaign, launch it, uh, measure it, and uh, uh, improve, reiterate. Now we know that, and I'll refer to banking and finance here, agile methodologies and cross-collaborative, uh, cross-functional groups are becoming uh, a common way of working. So having business silos that do their own thing and then report back their own results, I mean, it exists. There are verticals within many of these businesses. But what a lot of senior management is looking to do now is to say, even within marketing where I've got a PR team over here or I've got a digital team over here, or I've got a brand marketing team over here, how do I get them to work seamlessly together? 
other. So um, the example I'd use there is how, how do you form this uh, this collaborative group that every week you have a stand-up with the key members of each of those teams there who can uh, cross-pollinate all of the results and everything that they're learning because, hey, a PR executive has just taken something from um, a digital optimization manager and they've actually rolled that out in their own campaign world. You, you, you stand to see that instead of everyone um, doing well in their own disciplines, the sum of the parts does really well. So um, you, you would never have, the, the PR uh, manager would never have picked up on that insight from the conversion rate optimization manager without having that collaborative um, uh, sort of cross-functional working group. So for me, it's about how do you take that measurement model and then start running a series of tests in an always-on cross-functional team where you've got numerous different representatives from the different teams there who can learn together and then showcase everything, everything that they're learning as a group back to the executives because then what you're doing is you're, you, you, no one's kind of being a hero and saying, oh, I've gone and grown, uh, I just ran a campaign where I did this amazing new retargeting thing with this new DSP and I just grew the sales by 30%. That, that cowboy sort of mentality is a thing of the past. The group now can deliver these insights back on what customers are looking for, what um, uh, the, the CMO and the CEO should be aware of is what everyone's learned through running these series of incremental tests. And as you're going, you're actually improving everyone's results off the back of it. Nick, it's time for a little bit of disclosure. When you said before that you uh, might have missed the boat a couple of times, you have to tell us where did you, where, where how, what, give us the dirt. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a very pointy example here, which is I, I remember running a campaign once where we were using a major social media platform and we were running uh, a credit cards campaign. And what we did was to analyze the data um, and the, the demographic data, the sort of behavioral, social, um, everything about the, uh, the, the users of that platform that were clicking on and interacting and converting with that campaign. And what we did was to actually say, right, great, we're seeing that 45-year-old uh, females are really interested in this campaign because we've over-indexed in the number of clicks that we're getting with them proportionally to other demographics. And so what we did was to actually start creating a suite campaign assets across multiple channels where uh, it was tailored to that 45-year-old female um, who we believed uh, was clicking on our ads and, and, and it was almost too perfect for. So we had to capitalize on it. What it actually turned out had happened was due to the integrations and the, the way that the mechanisms were sitting behind retargeting and things like that, we'd actually skewed our targeting towards uh, users of this platform who were logging on to their desktop. Now, I don't know about you guys, but even, I mean, this, we're talking five years ago. Even five years ago, I don't know how often I would even log into my social media platforms on my desktop. And what did it turn out? It was actually a correlation. It was that our ad tech um, wasn't sufficient enough to give us targeting across multiple platforms. We believed that there was a, a certain sort of cohort where our campaign was really successful with. But what it actually turned out was that we ended up only targeting people who were 
are using desktop logins for their social media platform, oh, and guess what? It turned out that they were 45 years old on average and, and more so female than male. So there is a huge false positive that we then start to shape a campaign around. Now, you go back and go, what would I have done differently? And I would have gone, uh, don't buy into those statistics too much and you know, validate them with further research and uh, speak to customers, listen to, to calls. Whereas what we did was to actually take that insight without further validation, without peer reviews from other teams, and we just actioned it straight away. Joey, in terms of the capabilities and this, this radical overhaul that may be coming for marketers in terms of skill sets and so forth, is that real? Is, do, do they need to change up how they're thinking, operating and, and, and focusing, what they're focusing on in terms of their own capabilities? Absolutely, yeah. I think it was very easy before to say there's one answer, it's cookies for everything. And, and to refer back to what I mentioned before, I think it's now about assembling a, a tailored set of solutions across strategy and technology to address a new world. Accept that some things can't be replaced and even in some ways shift the business, right? We, the key part of moving to a strategy with a customer data platform, a CDP at the core, is to incentivize identity and move to an identity-focused world instead of a cookie-focused world. So the question is then, how can you incentivize identification? How can you make a user log in and tell you exactly who they are by providing value to those customers? And that can be quite difficult for some brands that need to, to shift the way that they operate, shift the entire way that their digital presence is set up. Uh, there's not a one-size fit solution, unfortunately, for all of this. It's a, it's a challenging set of problems intersecting that needs to be uh, approached at both a technology and a fundamentally a business level. Outside of e-commerce, which is obviously an obvious one that you can get ID sufficiently well, it doesn't leave there's some really big new sort of strategies required to get that, that, that ID login happening then, Joey. I totally agree. I, I mean, it's not just the identification, which can be difficult for other, other verticals like, uh, like publishers, like travel, where people will often only browse anonymously until they, they log in at point of purchase, if at all. That this creates a need for other, other means of interacting with customers and also bringing them back more regularly. You know, you think about insurance. Often are you going to see that customer come to your website, maybe once a year for a renewal, maybe once every two years. So the entire way of engaging with these customers to be able to more accurately have a view of what their life cycle is, it's going to have to change significantly. Anna, your thoughts? I have a few. I think uh, I agree with Joy, and this is how loyalty program, or I call them engaging programs, come to mind because you have to create that value for customers to keep coming back and keep logging in. And I'll give you a good example because, Paul, you're just uh, picking on uh, um, all of our um, comments that we're throwing out there and the, the stickiest one, you're calling it out, which is good. So before you go and ask me a question, I'm going to tell you about the tailored experience that we've created post-launch of CDP. Um, we decided to um, analyze who our top spenders um, are in one of the brands. And um, we wanted to understand how much do they spend for the brand a year. And um, at that point in time, uh, the number uh, came through was $5,000 um, in 12 months uh, for one brand. And we decided to create the um, separate tier, top tier within the existing loyalty program and um, give it a name and um, uh, quietly launch it and um, notify the customers via a phone call or an email that they're part of that group. 
uh, the quiet didn't work very well because within two weeks uh, we were slammed on social media saying my friend received this invitation I don't know anything about it I want to be part of the club but it created that FOMO that was very real the level of engagement with the brand and uh, how often they interact with the brand and they really are our brand ambassadors and they ended up last financial year contributing to the total sale of about 4.6 million dollars and that's just a handful of people at that point in time this this number came the sales came from just about 600 people in total so it's just to highlight that more is not always better and uh, that the tailored um, approach is so important and i think the cmos will be more under pressure to create this personalized and engaged um, human experience with customers and um, um, be empowered to create more tailored journeys to joy's point chris brinkworth uh, to you on skill sets capabilities gap there do you think oh, i think everywhere just even when Anna was speaking, there was a couple of things that came to mind. The human aspect here, the, the human impact, we've had a whole generation of analysts and media buyers, planners, etc., who've only ever worked in this world of behavioral. And they've only ever worked in this world of, of using a computer to go out and buy based on, on cookies. So, so that whole, whole training will change. Your agency deliverables from a media agency perspective will, will change. Um, any, any teams internally at both publisher, advertiser or agencies, their MBOs um, and their cross disciplines will be hugely impacted by all of this. So, so yes, it, it, there's going to be a lot of impacts that will take place on the human side as well as the technology side. I mean, the, if, if you're the best at understanding how behavioral targeting works, it's not really going to be very useful come 2022. So, so that's the challenge there. Great point. The implications, Chris, more broadly, is that what it looks like now is a consolidation, uh, a likely consolidation to the big tech duopoly in Facebook and Google. Is that what's going to happen here uh, in the short term, mid term, long term? What does it look like? I'm going to put some others in the mix there as well. So let's, let's talk about other big marketing clouds. Let's just leave it at marketing clouds as an example, right? So you've got yes you've got the these big companies like google who you mentioned um uh, and chromium project which is part of google and facebook facebook themselves are going to be heavily impacted by this and i, I don't think people understand that that's going to happen so if you consider all of those those little buttons which are the like buttons and uh, the the single sign-on etc uh, that goes on with on people's websites uh, they are third-party pieces of code that sit on a website so they will be blocked by Chrome. So, so, so that is one big thing that I'm certain Facebook are running around at the moment trying to work out what to do there. That's a mass amount of data. Unless I assume you're signing in with Google, that might get away with it. Yes, but again, that would be anti-competitive, right? So one of the things we've not really discussed here, and the reason Google would be doing this is very much around, um, we've got the GDPR in Europe, we've got CCPA over in California at the moment, that then may bridge across the greater America, whatever we decide here from a privacy perspective. So that, that side of things, the amount of money at risk for, for any kind of use of data without permission, this is the reason really that Chrome have done it. So I don't believe that Google are an entirely evil company at all. I, I really do believe that, they're, that there's some good things that they're doing. The whole media business and the whole advertising business is very separate to Chrome. It's a very separate business. So, so what Chrome are doing here is protecting themselves against uh, where they're collecting data 
um, or data is being able to be passed to third parties through them as a vehicle. That's where they're protecting themselves. So I don't believe that the single sign-on or, or that the, the, I mean, every, every, everyone wants to be the final single sign-on, don't they? But I don't think someone will be able to use Google data to then go retarget people across the internet. I don't think that will happen because that will suddenly become an anti-competitive um, suit. So I don't think that will happen there. Um, but like, it, it is clear, obviously, if you look at areas that won't be impacted by this, search. Uh, that's a very clear area that won't be impacted by this. And, and where do Google make a lot of money? Search as one example. So there's obviously areas, I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but there's areas where they will definitely survive and, and go stronger. Well, so who, are, so who are the likely, at this stage, the likely winners and losers as this emerges? Um, Chris and then maybe Joey. Yeah, I, I, I think straight away, and that's where I've been focused. So I've been focused on building partners for the past nine months from my time in the US um, in tag management. Um, this is obviously the next progression is identity. So, so I've been focused very much on, on the ability to build a safe bridge between advertisers, agencies, and publishers uh, where data can be exchanged in a privacy-efficient manner. And, and it's a very important piece. So if you don't have any kind of identity uh, as an identifier of who this person or who this device is, then, then you're not in a good position. So I think any companies that are, are focusing on identity will do very well. So those would, those would include LiveRamp, um, as everyone would have heard of LiveRamp, uh, as an example. Live Intent, who've done very well out of the US. And, and these are uh, companies like Live Intent, for example, have a very, very, very large opt-in of email addresses. So, so that, they're the people that will actually survive. Is people who can help you or who will excel at this are those who have found a way to own a large amount of identifiers and then add data to those identifiers. Joey, your take on uh, who wins, who loses out of this potentially? Yeah, I definitely think Google and Facebook, at short term, there will be a big shift of budgets across. The, the currency is shifting from cookies to identity and they're the most available with the most scale to instantly give that return. Uh, they're providing things to incentivize data coming into their platforms. They're really giving the incentive to brands to, to use a, a single ecosystem to take advantage of things like cross-channel measurement that only exists if you use Google products for every step of the chain. I think DMPs are, are clearly coming out of this as a big loser. DMPs will have to completely pivot or as the major clouds like Adobe, Salesforce are doing, incorporate the aspects of their technology into the customer data platform offering. Uh, customer data platforms as a category have had a big upswing, will continue to have a big upswing. And I think in terms of independent publishers, I think it's going to be challenging. As we wait to see, Chris mentioned LiveRamp there, is there something like a multi-publisher collective powered by something like LiveRamp that becomes a universal standard that can compete? with a, a Google or a Facebook at an identity level? Will the independent publishers rise to the occasion of being able to incentivize login across the board uh, for all users who are visiting their sites? I think it's a, a challenge for them for sure. Nick, is there any cautionary tales there? Joey talks about at least a short midterm swing uh, consolidation and support to Google, Facebook and others. Uh, is there any cautionary tales there for, for, for marketers and brands or that's okay uh, from your perspective? Yeah, look, I, I think it's 100% spot on. The, the thing that I'd say is, uh, to start with, is you, you need to really lean in as a marketer 
uh, and leverage these partnerships. That, that should be the first priority, in my opinion. Make sure that you have proper integrations with their platforms um, because they're not going anywhere. You know, they have uh, incredible teams. They have incredible engineering teams, customer facing. Um, so I think the first thing is, Absolutely, they will get stronger for this. And I think anyone who wants to use the 2022 cookie apocalypse to become stronger should be leveraging those partnerships. The, the second part I would say is that in a few years' time, uh, what, what will inevitably happen is that senior management will probably start asking questions around how we're progressing. Um, you know, there'll be other problems. There'll be things like Chris mentioned earlier about, you know, live chat. Um, there, there might be things like app integrations where, um, you know, you can't rely on one, two, maybe three vendors in the market to service everything that you need. So I, I would say that what every brand should be doing is assessing their own strategy. And, uh, you know, it's that old saying that um, uh, winners focus on winning, losers focus on winners. So what I mean by that is I think every brand needs to be considering what's their roadmap for the next few years. The first year or so will just be making sure that those integrations with those major partners who are going to get stronger and also anyone that they're affiliated with um, who has a large first-party data set which has, you know, um, opt-ins from customers that has really good permissions management, um, you know, more identifiers than just cookies, you know, so things like email addresses, um, apps, you know, you might have own a sort of huge app that's used by a lot of people. Um, they should be looking to those partners uh, and, and considering how you have mutual value. And Joey mentioned earlier about um, incentivizing customers to kind of sign up and, and to give their permission for certain things. You know, I'll, I'll refer to the airlines here with the greatest of respect because I think they are very, very uh, strong in this space, albeit going through a very tough time now. But they are very, very good at using uh, rewards to, to, first of all, give really transparent permissions about how their data is going to be used. Um, and their technology reflects that all the way through that sort of supply chain of data. Um, and they're, they're then able to actually incentivize customers to give their permission to use their data in that way. So I go, you know what, take a learning from these companies, um, but consider that your strategy is your own. And yes, you will be able to partner up with these major companies, maybe even, you know, the players like Amazon as well are going to become uh, huge in this space. Um, but consider that over the next, um, you know, sort of three to five years, you're going to need to only focus on what's going to deliver your customer um, expectations. And I, I don't think that you can do that just relying on one or two tech vendors or partners. Well, for what it's worth, my view, danger, danger, if we end up down the track with the consolidation into a small number of players, which the market may do because it's convenient and easy, but a couple of years on, we may end up biting us on something. That's what typically happens in this market, but that's only my view. We are just about out of time. We've got to wrap this up, but I do want to do two more things. A couple of points from each of you on, on what marketers should be really thinking of in the next few months and, and some, some words of wisdom there. But before we do that, Anna, we have to get to you about how you've been managing through this chaos that's called COVID in the past two months. What have you been doing as a, as a company and as a marketer um, to adapt and, well, actually scramble and survive, if nothing else? You're right, Paul. It has been challenging times for everyone, but I think um, well, early on we identified the need to be 
um, very reactive and proactive at the same time. So we turned um, our attention to the customer service team, listening to all the conversations, um, listening to conversations on live chat that went absolutely ballistic. And um, we served about 800 chats in, in four days. So we had to uh, put more people uh, behind it to have those conversations and understand what the customers are going through, what are the painful moments. Um, some were using the chat and the and the, the phone line as a beyond blue line and understanding what people are going through, right? The emotionally and, and being empathetic and serve them accordingly. So you were selling you were selling apparel or clothing and counselling. Is that what you're saying, Anna? That's exactly what it's what it has been. And uh, but it was good to react it in real time and understand. Okay, do we have to have more people? Uh, to, because the conversations sometimes go up to 40 minutes with one customer, and then you have 25 of them waiting in the queue. So how do you stay empathetic, but at the same time create the deficiency that people don't get frustrated, the ones that stay in the queue? So that has been very effective for us because you have people who purchased the dress uh, two hours ago and expected to arrive within five minutes. and um, But you have those who say, I'm lonely, I'm lost, um, I have no idea what it means, I don't know what to do, um, I'm very loyal to your brand, I'm so glad that the company didn't stand you down, that you actually still answer the phone. So that's been um, very good for us to um, be um, very proactive and remain customer-centric, as difficult as it has been. Then uh, what we also picked up with uh, shutting down 240 stores, that those people who have used to uh, shopping in our um, shops and not online, they're now purchasing online, but they do not familiar with the journey. And we also uh, have a very diverse demographic. So we deal with people 70 plus and 80 plus that um, do not use the computer that often. And I overhear so many conversations with the customer service teams. Like, dear, do you see that button on the re- right-hand side? And it says shop now. Can you please click on that button? It's just been an, uh, um, an incredible experience. You know, some things that you would never, when things are normal, um, you don't pick it up, but what this new norm looks like and how we address it, but with the view that we still want to serve our customers in the best way possible. You, you call a little bit of BS too on it, don't you, in, with the surge in, in online shopping and e-commerce sales. You say, well, we might be up 700%, but we've closed 240 stores. The gap is still very, very large. I think that's one of the points you, you, you sort of talked about earlier, Anna. Absolutely. I, Paul, I appreciate that people want to stay positive, but we, we have to call the spade a spade. I mean, all these conversations, the online is 200% up and 700% up. And it might be true, but in the omni-channel environment, it's kind of irrelevant because it still doesn't cover the cost of the overheads that um, that you, you're going through. And across some categories, we were 700% up. And because part of the Everlast who's selling sporting goods and apparel, that's been obviously very, um, very popular. But... Um, I don't I prefer not to get engaged in those conversations, like how well um, the digital is performing. Well, it's better perform well, because if you don't, when all stores are closed and you're capitalizing on that traffic, that I doubt that you know what you're doing and uh, your digital strategy is a bit shaky. So A voice of reason and pragmatism. I, I like that, Anna. So let's get a, uh, to wrap this up, a couple of final points from, from, from all of you about the journey towards the cookie apocalypse. To you first, Joey, what's, what, what are two points that people need to come away from this conversation with? 
Absolutely. So the first thing right now is education. If you work in or adjacent to digital and you think that this doesn't affect you, you are wrong. The digital economy is and will continue to shift around this. So get educated, understand what is broken now and what could break in the future. Uh, subscribe to resources, sites like cookiestatus.com, chrome22.com, the most up-to-date resources collating the, the updates around this. And the second one is to have some forward thinking that really this is only the beginning. It's not the mechanism but the fundamental philosophy of anonymous user tracking that Apple and Google are taking issue with. So how can you align philosophically for safety? How can you have consent and preference management at the core of your strategy? Get ahead of this with a roadmap of what that strategy looks like and then let that shape what your technology investments look like to pair with that. Anna, a couple of thoughts from you. I think I agree with what Joey mentioned before about the CDP uh, not being a, a holy grail, but um, a, a part of the tailored solution. And um, we need to understand how do we strengthen the uh, partnerships? Um, how do we um, uh, manage the permission marketing? And um, um, how do we roll it out across all channels? So we just need to be more agile than ever and probably got to the point of upskilling our in-house teams rather than delegating everything to digital um, agencies and um, uh, put more control um, into the, the teams that operate and deal with the brands on the day-to-day -day basis. But luckily for us, we're one step ahead and we already have a sophisticated CDP platform that we rolled out and everyone knows how to use. But that doesn't mean that we do everything right. So we still need to finesse those journeys further. Chris Brinkworth, final two thoughts. Because this is an Australian podcast, I thought, I thought the whole bushfire analogy and fire plan is good, right? So obviously you don't want to panic. Uh, but also don't don't think it's all going to be okay. You've got to have a fire plan and you've got to start planning now based on that non-cookie world. So when Nick was saying earlier on, um, just don't go with a couple of vendors, my, 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 my thoughts are a lot of people would go straight away to, all right, I'll just go all in with Facebook and all in with Google um, and the DV360 product because that's wholly integrated into Chrome and Google Stacks and that make life, makes life easier. But then if you do do something like that, where do you actually learn? How do you learn from, from other people if you're just using these tools? You don't have any budget to go out and learn because you put it all into those two buckets. So uh, as an example there, vertical ad necks will 100% ad networks with 100% CAE uh, a resurgence. Uh, and if you don't have the budget to test them, you won't know how successful they are. So from a fire plan perspective, the most important thing would be in every single business, who is your internal expert that you have nominated that will keep all of your teams updated. So who is your cookie expert? Might be the person in charge of the tag management, the CDP, et cetera, but they need to have a countdown clock on their desk. Uh, what resources have they subscribed to? Like Joey said, chrome2022.com. That has a collation of all of the marketing articles, podcasts, et cetera. This will probably be up there as well. So, so what, have they, what have they subscribed to as part of their MBO? Um, but at the same time, do they always remember that Google are not the enemy here? They're not the bad guys. So Google have invited everyone to put forward their thoughts for the past two years, for the next two years. So that Chrome 2022 deadline, they've said, hey, tell us what you want to do. How can we work with you? So if 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 businesses don't put forward what they want, they can't cry cry foul by the end of that period if it's actually not been put forward. So they've got to interact with Google to do it. Um, and the final thing is that kind of MBO of that person is like, 
have they done an audit of all of their data providers and how those data providers are also going to be working going forward with Chrome 2022? What's their fire plan for that particular vendor? And also, if you're not collecting all the data, like Anna said earlier on, if you're not collecting, aggregating, and analyzing every bit of data you have at the moment, and then correlating it with a cookie-based world now, then if you've not done that before the cookies are blocked, you won't know which way to head. So, so th that'd be my kind of final thing is don't panic um, and have a plan. That would be the, the two things there. Final thoughts for Nick Barnett. What, uh, what would you say to your, your marketing peers, Nick? Awesome. So in the brands and businesses that I work with, I, I help uh, banking, digital and marketing leaders to reduce customer losses to their competitors and to generate sales uplift. So that is ultimately my focus off the back of this. Um, so the first thing I'd say is to draft this email to the CMO or head of, uh, which is, as you're aware, we spend approximately X million on digital marketing per year. Uh, we have evidence to suggest that up to 85% of this will be rendered useless as of 2022 due to industry changes. This will result in us losing customers to better prepared competitors due to our marketing being inefficient and customer experiences breaking. The good news is I have some potential solutions we can explore. Please, can I have your endorsement? Hey, I, I've just written that one down myself. Thanks for that, Nick. Brilliant. <laughs> My pleasure. Number two, in the spirit of just uh, giving a second practical tip, is that I do believe after COVID-19 that budgets are going to be under tremendous pressure. And I do think in digital marketing teams, it's going to be very, very hard to find the funding for this, even though it is particularly important there is a high level of urgency around it so my final parting gift if you like is to advise uh, teams wherever possible to seek funding from governance and privacy uh, budgets because i do think as chris mentioned this is in line with protecting the privacy the freedom and rights of individuals across the world uh, therefore any efforts to get behind this um, can be pitched into a business and you can demonstrate that this has uh, an improvement in governance and privacy if done the right way. Thank you, Nick. Well, if, uh, dear listener, if that hasn't whetted your appetite, then I don't know what will. Uh, a fantastic conversation. Uh, probably need, I need to replay it about 14 times to comprehend everything these chaps and ladies have talked about, but uh, that, is my, uh, that is my task. So thanks for joining all. Uh, a great conversation. Stay safe and I think we'll loop around in a few, few months and see what's happening. Thanks for joining. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.